there are always popular people. There are popular people at school. There are popular people at work. There are popular people in the church. There are popular people in the culture. What's interesting is that for most of us, we are drawn to the lives and the stories of popular people. Today we come to the most popular judge in the ancient book that bears its name. We come to the most prominent judge. It's not Gideon, nor is it Deborah. You know that it's not Ahud, Shamgar, or Jephthah. But when you think about this prominent judge, he stands taller than the rest. He's mighty. He's macho. He is powerful. He is influential. He is popular. He is Samson. The story of Samson is an important story in the book of Judges. In fact, it seconds only to Gideon in its scripture space. There are 100 verses dedicated to the story of Gideon. There are 96 verses dedicated to the story of Samson. Samson is a man with great promise. He's also a man with great problems. I have long been told that great men have great flaws. And such is the case with Samson. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to Judges chapter 13. The entire chapter will be the background of our study. But this morning, I want to read the final two verses, verse 24 and 25. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Judges chapter 13, allow me to read verses 24 and 25 in your hearing. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew. The Lord blessed him. The Spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Mahana Dan, between Zorah and Eshtol. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God, you may be seated. Judges chapter 13, verse 1, begins with those infamous words. Once again, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. If you're keeping count, that's the seventh time we've heard that phrase. It'll be the last time that we hear that phrase. The number seven is the number of totality. It's the number of completion. Israel has completely gone headlong into sin. You do realize that sin will take you places that you don't want to go. Sin will prompt you to stay there longer than you want to stay. Sin will cause you to do things that you just don't want to do. It's James, the brother of our Lord, who says that when t temptation comes because of evil desires, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. The ultimate goal of sin in your life and in mine, in the lives of the people of judges, in the lives of the people of today, is eternal separation from God. For the seventh and final time in the book of Judges, we read, once again, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, by now, you're accustomed to the cycle of Judges. Judges usually goes from disobedience to discipline, where God raises up a pagan nation to discipline his own. At the bottom of the barrel, they cry out in despair when life gets real tough. They crowd in despair. They plead for forgiveness. They call for repentance. And God responds by 
delivering them by raising up a judge. And then there's a momentary period of delight. So it goes from disobedience to discipline to despair to deliverance to delight. When we come to our story, we are told that the Philistines were raised up by God and the Israelites were given over to the hands of the Philistines. The Philistines had rule and reign over Israel for 40 years. Now that is the longest period of oppression in the book of Judges. There's no other nation that rules over God's people for longer than the Philistines. They were there for 40 years. What's interesting is that in our story of Judges chapter 13, there is no call of despair. There's no opportunity. There's no time. There's no occasion When God's people say enough is enough, God, we know we are sinful and we call on you and ask for you to deliver us, to forgive us, to redeem us, to rescue us. In Judges 13, there's no call of despair. God's people never come to their senses. They never get to the point where they say, I am a wretch, I'm a hot mess, I have messed up, and I need you to help me. There's no place where God's people cry out. For 40 years, they've been in this disobedience. The one thing that's worse than repeated sin is unrepentant sin. When people not only repeat their sin, but they're not sorry for it. They're unrepentant. In verse 3 of chapter 13, we discover that the angel of the Lord appears. The angel of the Lord we understand to be Jesus Christ. We talked about this when we studied Gideon, that when you find the definitive article, the, in front of angel of the Lord, I think every time in the Old Testament, that means Jesus Christ. The angel of the Lord that appeared on Mount Moriah. The angel of the Lord that appeared in the days of David. The angel of the Lord that uh, appeared in the days of Gideon. The angel of the Lord right here in our passage is none other than Jesus the Christ. The greatest argument for that is that following the incarnation of Christ, you will never read in the New Testament the angel of the Lord. You'll read about an angel. You'll read about angels from God. But you will not read about the angel of the Lord in the New Testament, which tells us that any time in the Old Testament when we see it, that is a a pre-incarnation visitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The angel of the Lord came to fix it. Now, why did Jesus show up in Judges chapter 13? Well, there was a man by the name of Manoah, And he had a wife, and we're not given her name, but we are given her condition. She was barren. Like Sarah, like Rebecca, like Rachel, like Hannah, like Elizabeth, she was unable to conceive. She was barren. Desperately wanted a child, but the husband and wife, they could not conceive and bear a child. So the angel of the Lord appeared. The angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, came to fix it. He came to fix up the problem that had left them messed up. I've told you before 
that there's some things in this world that money can't fix, and there's some things in this world that the military cannot fix, some things in this world that Congress can't fix, some things in this world that your uh, 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 parents cannot fix, some things in this world that the president can't fix, some things that your charisma can't fix, but there's nothing in this world that Jesus can't fix. Jesus can make a way out of no way. Jesus can give help to the helpless. He comes to give hope to the hopeless. Jesus is the one who makes something out of nothing. Jesus is the one that gives righteousness to the reprobate. He's the one who gives faith to the fallen. He is the one who gives salvation to the sinner. He is the one who gives a baby to a barren woman. Jesus shows up to fix it. Now regardless of the problem that's in your life today, Regardless of the situation or scenario that drags you into church, keeps you up at night, causes you to worry and wring your hands, regardless of that person, regardless of that problem, regardless of that situation or scenario, I want you to know Jesus can fix it. Jesus can fix it. Whatever it is that's your problem today, whatever it is that you worry about, Jesus can handle it. Embedded Under just about every scripture of sacred text are the questions, do you trust me and will you obey me? And if you listen closely, you can hear the echo of God, even here in Judges chapter 13. There is no cry of despair, but do you trust him? There is no point when people come to their senses, but will you obey him? Do you believe, do you believe with all your heart that Jesus can fix this problem, even the problem of Judges chapter 13? If he can fix this problem, he can fix your problem. He can take care of you. He comes here in Judges 13. He speaks to the woman and listen to this birth narrative. It's a nativity story like none other in Judges. In fact, Samson is the only one who's given a nativity story. He's the only one who's given a birth announcement. The angel of the Lord comes and says to Mrs. Manoah, no wine, no fermented drink, may cross your lips. All the devout Southern Baptists say, amen. All right. So no wine, no fermented drink, cross your lips, and do not eat any unclean food. The bouncing baby boy that's going to be conceived inside of you, no fermented drink, no wine, no unclean food may cross his lips. In fact, No razor may touch his head. God will set him apart for his service from birth until death. Now traditionally this is called a Nazarite vow. It's found in Numbers chapter 6. And Samson, this one that would be conceived inside of Mrs. Manoah, he was set aside for God's service. He was set aside for a Nazarite vow so that no fermented drink, no wine should ever cross his lips. No unclean food should ever cross his lips into his mouth, into his stomach. Uh, No razor should ever touch his head because he was going to be used in a mighty way by God from birth until death. What a birth announcement. What an amazing statement. God is going to use your womb, your womb which is barren. It will open up by the power of God. God will conceive inside of you something that is truly splendid and spectacular. And this one that's been born to you, he will have a Nazarite vow. What's remarkable in all of this is that Jesus shows up even when the people didn't ask for him. Jesus came to help even though they didn't ask for help. I don't know about you, but that caused me to say, thank you, God. 
Thank you for being a God who shows up even when I don't ask for you to show up. Thanks for being a God who helps me even when I don't know that I need help. Thank you for helping me in the midst of my sin and my sickness and my sadness. Thank you for showing up even when I don't even ask for you to show up. Jesus shows up to fix it, to open up her womb so that she may conceive and give birth to a son. Now this is amazing, right? I mean, God is doing a new work. He's doing something spectacular. This judge, he's, he's like the others, but he's unlike the others. He's going to be used from birth until death. Well, Mrs. Manoah, she's so elated, so excited, she goes and she tells her husband. And her husband Manoah says, baby, I believe you. I believe every word you said. But I want God to tell me too. So in verse 8, Manoah prayed. In verse 9, God heard. Let me stop right there. In verse 8, Manoah prayed. Remember, this is during a time when Israel had no king and everyone did as he saw fit. There was anarchy, there was chaos, there was confusion. People were living however they wanted to live. They were calling right, wrong, and wrong, right, up, down, and down, up. I mean, they were confused on every side. Yet even in the midst of the sheer chaos, there were still some praying to the Lord. Friend, there's always a remnant There's always a remnant of people that God preserves throughout every age, every generation, in every nation. God preserves a remnant for himself. There are always some people who are dependent on Yahweh, the one true God of the universe. Here it's Manoah. He prayed in verse 8. And immediately in verse 9 we are told God heard. Can I ask you, why do you pray? Why do you pray? There are probably a lot of good answers that you could supply, but let me just tell you mine. I pray because I believe God listens. If somebody could convince me that God does not hear the prayers of his people, then I don't know that I would pray. But I don't know anybody who could convince me otherwise. I read it in the scripture. I know it from personal experience. I hear it from your testimony. You pray, God hears. You pray, God acts. You pray, God responds. When you pray, there's something about it that captures the attention of the God of the cosmos and it moves him to action. It's not just that God cares when he hears, but he acts upon what he cares when he hears. Oh, I don't know about you, but that gets me excited to know that God calls me to pray because he promises when you pray, I will listen. Manoah prayed, and God answered. Let that sink in. The king of glory hears your broken nouns and verbs. The king of the cosmos lends an attentive ear when you attempt to push air over your vocal cords and put together some vowels and consonants. God hears The perfect God of the universe who spoke into nothing and nothing became something. This perfect God who speaks everything perfectly. He stops, lends an attentive ear to your broken words, your broken verbs, your broken nouns, your broken adjectives from your broken mouth, from your broken lips, out of your broken mind that erupted out of your broken heart, out of your brokenness, God hears. My goodness, when I come to this story... I think what a great God we have. Because Manoah prayed in verse 8. God heard 
in verse 9. The response was that God said, I will send the angel of the Lord again to the household of Mr. and Mrs. Manoah. So the angel of the Lord returned. That's Jesus. Jesus returned. He entertained a conversation with Manoah. But at this point, Manoah doesn't know that this is the angel of the Lord. He just thinks that who appeared to him was some godly man, a messenger, who his wife er earlier said was very awesome. She said he was very awesome. I don't know if that means very attractive, but it means very awesome. That who appeared to me was very awesome. So he prayed and said, let that very awesome man come back. And the angel of the Lord returned. He engaged Manoah in a conversation. Manoah asked him a question. He said, when um, this bouncing baby boy is conceived and when my wife gives birth to him, verse 12, what will be the rule of this boy's life and action? What will be the rule? It's right there in verse 12. The rule means instruction, guidelines, parameters, guardrails. What will be the governor, the ruler, the instructor over my son's life? The angel of the Lord responds, you do as I have told you to do. No wine, no fermented drink, no unclean food, no razor upon his head. You do as I have said. Now take three steps back from that passage. What is God telling us? What is the rule, the governor, the guideline, the guardrails over the life of Samson? And the answer is my word. The word that the angel of the Lord had given to Mr. and Ms. Manoah, that word is the guardrail. Now think about it. In your life, what is the rule? What is the instruction? What are the guardrails? What helps to set up the guidelines for your life and, li and mine? What helps to, to, to govern our lives so that we live in obedience unto God? What is the, the rule of our life? The rule of our life is the very word of God. The word of God that we've been given. The word incarnate, Jesus Christ. The word in written form, the Bible that you hold in your hand. This Bible, this word, it is the rule of God. God in your life. It is the guideline from God in your life. It is the guardrail that God sets up so that you know what's in bounds and what's out of bounds. You live according to the sacred word of God and it's the rule of God over your life and over your work. What the angel of the Lord says to Samson and about Samson, he says about you and about me. This is the rule. These are the guardrails. This is how we live. We live doing what the Lord tells us to do. You get to verse 15, and Mr. Manoah says, you know, that sounds pretty good. Why don't you stay for dinner? Let's prepare a meal for you. It's our hospitality. It's what we do. And uh, you clearly are a, a man of God. So, so why don't we prepare a meal for you? And the angel of the Lord says, you know what? You might detain me, but I can't eat your food. There's clue number one. I... I can't eat your food, uh, but I tell you what you ought to do. You ought to make a sacrifice to the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Make a sacrifice, offer a burnt offering to the God of the universe. 
as they're making the preparation. Manoah asks another question in verse 17. Hey, I didn't catch your name. Sir, what is your name? He responds by saying, my name is beyond understanding. Why do you want to know? My name is beyond understanding. Well, it's nice to meet you, Mr. Beyond Understanding. My name is Manoah. No, no, no. My name's not beyond understanding. My name is just understanding. And I'm really beyond understanding. The word understanding really is the word that's translated wonderful. Jesus is telling him, my name is wonderful. But it's beyond wonderful. My name is understanding, but it's really beyond understanding. This reminds me of the burning bush that was on fire, but not being consumed. And Moses said to the Lord, what is your name? And in Exodus chapters 2 and 3, the Lord says, my name is I am who I am. Well, that's nice, Mr. I am who I am. But what does that mean? It means I'm the God who always was, is, and will be. I am who I am. I'm always in a state of isness. I'm always in a present state. I'm not past. I'm not future. I'm just the God who always was, is, and will be. I am eternal. That's what God is saying. In Exodus, he says, I am eternal. Here in Judges, he says, I'm just beyond understanding. I'm beyond wonderful. If you stop and think about it, isn't that who Jesus is? The angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, he is beyond wonderful. His name is wonderful, isn't it? Isaiah said of that child, he is the wonderful counselor, the almighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. There's something about the name of Jesus. It's so high, I, I can't reach it. It's so expansive, I can't get my arms around it. It's so weighty, I can't carry it. It is so grand and glorious, I can't pull it down. It's beyond wonderful. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. At the name of Jesus, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God Almighty. There's something about the name of Jesus, isn't there? It calms my fears. It, it wipes away my tears. There's something about the name of Jesus. It gives me peace that passes all understanding. It gives me joy that the culture can't cancel. It, it, it gives me something that cannot be taken away. There's something, something about the name of Jesus. Here in Judges 13, he's just saying, it's beyond wonderful. It's beyond your understanding. Well, Manoah is trying to process all of this. They get the uh, offering ready, the burnt sacrifice. And then something spectacular takes place. As the flames are being lifted from the altar, the angel of the Lord ascends to the heavens in those flames. And it's at that point that Manoah, the man of God, the, the spiritual leader of the house, he he realizes he's been in the presence of God Almighty. He turns to his wife and he says to Mrs. Manoah, and I quote, we're doomed. <laughs> we're as good as dead. We've seen the Lord. There's no way we can survive this. We have been talking to God Almighty, the God of the cosmos, the King of glory. We've been speaking to him. 
There's no way we're going to survive. We are doomed. Pack your bags, baby. I'll see you in heaven because we're toast. There's no way we can survive this. And Mrs. Manoah, who may have a little bit more spiritual insight than her husband, and that happens sometimes, doesn't it, wives? She looks at her husband and she says, if God wanted to kill us, he would have already taken us. But he's given us this promise that we will conceive. And this one that will be born to us is a bouncing baby boy who will deliver Israel. And he'll be set apart for God's use from the first day to the last day. If God was going to kill us, he would have already done so. He would not bring us to this promise and then take it away from us. So you come to our verses, verses 24 and 25. And it says that the woman conceived. She gave birth to a son. They named him Samson. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir in that child. The spirit of the Lord is important in the lives of all the judges, but especially Samson. In fact, in Samson's story of Judges 13, 14, 15, and 16, the Spirit of the Lord is mentioned four times. Not once, not twice, not three, but four times. The Spirit of the Lord is paramount in the story of Samson. The only things that Samson will do that are good is because of the prompting of the Spirit of the Lord. Friends, the only good things that you and I do are those things prompted by the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord is the one that stirs and moves and calls and convicts. It's the Spirit of the Lord that prompts. It's the Spirit of the Lord that was stirring in that little boy's life. Samson, he's a man of great promise. He'll also be a man of great problems. Every great man has great flaws. Every great woman has great flaws. Every great person has great flaws. Can I get an amen or oh my? Because you know that to be true, don't you? I mean, you have great promise, but you also have some great problems, don't you? You're a person who is great. You're a person who's great because of the great God that lives inside of you in Jesus Christ our Lord. But even though Jesus lives inside of you, believer, even though Jesus has redeemed you, Christian, even though Jesus sets up shop in your life, there's still opportunities for you to have great flaws, right? If you look at Samson's life, he has great promise, but he also has great problems. Did you know that that Samson will marry a Philistine woman? He shouldn't do that. That's out of bounds. That's out of the guardrails of the rule of God upon his life. But he, he convinces mom and dad, she's the one for me, and he marries her. He'll go on, and he will eat honey from a carcass of a lion. You think to yourself, well, that sounds gross, but what's the big deal about that? Well, he's touching something that's unclean. He will eat the honey from the bees that set up in the dead carcass. He will eat that honey, and then he will in turn take that honey and give it to mom and dad, and they'll eat it. 
And he'll never tell them where it came from. Because friends, the sin that's in your life, it doesn't just contaminate you. It contaminates others. I mean, the sin that you commit, it's not isolated just with you. The sin that you commit, the sin that I commit, it affects other people. That's what Samson will do. He'll throw caution to the wind. He'll live according to his own rule, his own guidelines, his own guardrails. He'll take honey from a dead carcass of a lion. He'll eat the honey and then give it to his mom and dad. I won't tell him where it came from. He contaminated himself. He contaminated his own parents in the sight of God. Samson, he, he'll hook up with a prostitute. It's never a good idea. But Samson will do that. And then Samson will get mixed up with the woman named Delilah. We'll learn more about that next week. But let it be known that Delilah is the only woman in Samson's life that we know her name. We don't know the name of his mama. We don't know the name of the Philistine wife. We don't know the name of the prostitute that he hooked up with on Friday night. We only know the name of Delilah. And everybody knows the name of Delilah, don't they? Delilah, that bad girl of Scripture, right? I mean, everybody knows about Delilah. But Samson, he, he gets mixed up in all of this. I want to give you this statement, and I believe it to be true, that the best part of this story is that Mr. and Ms. Manoah understand that we are here to worship God exclusively. And to work for God passionately. And the best part of this story is what's true for them is also true for you. The reason you exist, the reason you're alive, is to worship God exclusively. And to work for Him passionately. To work for Him and use everything at your disposal. All the fruit of your life. Your children, your grandchildren, your resources, your influence. Use all of it to leverage for the good and glory of God. Mr. and Ms. Manoah understood that. They said, hey, this child that's going to be born to us, he will be great. He has great promise. He'll be used of the Lord. He will rescue God's people from birth until death. And they understood the best part of this chapter is that you exist to worship God exclusively and to work for Him passionately. Oh, but as you think about the life of Samson, you realize this statement that your sin, it will halt your holiness, but it will not stop the will of God. It will halt your holiness, but it won't stop the will of God. You say, Pastor, where do you get that? I get that from the flashing caution light of verse 5 of chapter 13. When the birth announcement is given to Mrs. Manoah about this one to be named Samson, the angel of the Lord says, he, being Samson, will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. It's verse 5. He, being Samson, will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Focusing on that word begin. Samson will begin that deliverance, but he won't complete it. Why? Because of his own sin. 
His sin will halt his own holiness. That's a word of caution for all of us. Your sin will halt your holiness. I'm not saying that your sin will destroy it because by God's grace, he works beyond your sin. But make no mistake about it. When you choose sin over the Savior, that sin just might halt your personal holiness. But regardless, your sin can't stop the will of God. Samson has great promise, but he has great problems. He's a great man with great flaws. His sin will halt him from completing the task. His task was to deliver Israel from the Philistines. They've been ruling over Israel for four decades, 40 years. He will begin that, but he won't complete it. Oh, it's true. He'll destroy thousands of Philistines, but he won't conquer them. Do you know that to be true? You may um, get a victory in a battle, but you feel like you're losing the war. That's Samson. He gets the victories every once in a while, and they're impressive. He's mighty. He's macho. He's a man's man. He's awesome. But he'll get a victory every once in a while. But every time he takes a step forward, he'll take two steps back. Why? Because his sin halts his holiness but it cannot stop the will of God in verse 5 there's a caution light he'll begin the deliverance but he won't complete it is the implication he'll begin it but he won't finish it did that cause God to wring his hands and throw up his hands in the air and say oh well can't do anything about it no no because there's one named David who will come after the period of the judges. David, a man after God's own heart. David, to be established as king over Israel. David, the gold standard upon which every king that follows him is compared to him. David. And David begins as a ruddy, handsome teenage boy. He goes to battle. And who does David defeat? The, Goli the giant named Goliath. Where's Goliath from? He's from Gath. Where is Gath? It's a Philistine town. And David will defeat and conquer the Philistines. In fact, under David's rule and reign of Israel, the territory of the nation will expand to great heights. What Samson could not do, David will fulfill. But even David, even David will fall short. You know, Samson, he... He was uh, strong with men. He was weak when it came to women. He was righteous at times in his anger. He was sinful at times in his retaliation. And boy, Samson could retaliate quickly. And we'll see that. David. David was a good man. But David also had struggles, didn't he? David, the man after God's own heart, he still was halted by his own sin. The sexual deviant sin of David's life halted David's holiness. 
So you read the book of Judges and there's Samson and, and he's got promise but he's got problems. He'll begin the deliverance but he can't complete it. And then you read on further once you get past Judges and you get to the period of the kings and you'll find David. And David's a good guy but he's not a great guy. But friend, there's a descendant of David who finished the task. There's a descendant of David who will complete the work. There is a descendant of David who will conquer the enemy physically and spiritually. There is a descendant of David. This descendant of David also has a birth nativity narrative in the scripture. This descendant of David also has a birth announcement that's given by an angel to the mother that this one will be great and greatly praised. This descendant of David is one who is strong, not just physically, but also spiritually, for he was tempted in every way, just as you are, yet he was without sin. This descendant of David, he will conquer the enemies against the people of God. He will do it by going the path of suffering. He will, he will bear a cross on his shoulders. He will stumble and stagger through the streets of Jerusalem. He will look bloody and beaten he will go up a Calvary's hill, a skull-shaped hill called Golgotha, and there one Friday in the third decade of the first century, he who knew no sin will become sin. He will take upon himself your sin and my sin. He will take upon himself your condemnation and my condemnation. And Jesus, who is the descendant of David, he will complete the task. He will finish what Samson started. He will finish what David could not complete. Jesus will finish it. You say, Pastor, how do you know that Jesus can finish it? Because he said it from his very own lips. He declared to Telestai, it is finished. Payment for sin is finished. The devil has been defeated. It is finished. What Samson began so many years ago, Jesus will finish on the hill called Golgotha. And yes, the death of Jesus will conquer every adversary against the people of God. Not just the Philistines, but ultimately, Satan, the devil, and his demons. The one who tries to capture you and enslave you as a vicious taskmaster of your sin. Jesus will declare it's finished. Payment has been made in full. You have now been set free. The one who knew no sin took on your sin so that you who have sin may take on his innocent righteousness. At the moment of your faith, there's a sweet transaction that takes place that you give him all your sin, he gives you his full, complete salvation. Oh, Jesus died on that cross on Friday. He was hanging between two thieves. He bowed his head. He gave up his ghost. They took down his dead body, placed him into a borrowed grave, rolled a massive stone in front of it. He stayed there in the tomb all day Friday and all day Saturday, even into the early hours of Sunday. But early on Easter Sunday morning, I said early on Easter Sunday morning, Jesus got up. God the Father raised God the Son by the power of God the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord that stirred uh, Samson some four times in his story is the same Spirit of the Lord that brought Jesus back to life 
life on that great Easter Sunday morning. And Jesus came forth from the grave, victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave. So our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And we dare not trust the sweetest frame, but we wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock. We stand all of the ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. So our hope is in the great one, the great man, the great savior, the one without flaws, Jesus the Christ. When you look at Samson, you may find somebody with a striking resemblance of you. He's great. So are you. He has great promise. So do you. He has great problems. So do you. He has great flaws. So do you. Even Samson is in need of a Savior. And so are you. The good news of the book of Judges, the good news of the Bible, is that there is a Savior. His name is Jesus. And Jesus came to die on the cross for you, to take all your flaws upon himself, to give all of you his perfect perfection. And you just have to receive it by faith. I wonder this morning, is there somebody here who's in need of God's salvation? Somebody here who would say, you know what, I've never accepted Jesus Christ. I wouldn't call myself a Christian. But maybe you're listening today and you're thinking, you know what, I'm flawed. I've got to, I make a lot of mistakes. The payment for that sin is eternal separation from God. But God loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die in your place as your substitute so that his innocent righteousness might be credited as belonging to you. And that transfer happens at the moment of faith, belief. When you declare, I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. And I confess he is my king. Everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But maybe you're here today and you are a believer. You've trusted Jesus. But let's just be honest. You look into the mirror and the person that stares back at you has some flaws. Maybe just like Samson. You're a Christian though. But maybe today you just need to come and kneel here at the altar and be reminded once again that the reason you exist is to worship God exclusively and to work for him passionately. And maybe what's happened is you've allowed your sin to halt your holiness. Now, I can't stop the will of God in your life, but it just might be halting, snagging your holiness. And today, beloved, you can come, cast all your cares upon the one who cares so very much for you. And while we sing an invitation song, maybe you need to come and kneel here and pray. Maybe you need to come and take one of the ministers by the hand and say, I I need that Jesus. Maybe God is calling you to do something great for him in ministry, in vocation, and you need to make that known today. Maybe God is drawing you to join this church, this faith family, because you say, you know what? This is where I want to plant my family because I, I, I want my family to be rooted in the rule of God, in the guardrails of God, in the very word of God. As God moves, As God stirs, because he still does, as God stirs your spirit, 
Won't you respond in obedience to him? Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. We ask for your rule and your reign to be upon our lives. Please be clear on what you want us to do. Help us to respond in obedience. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.